No matter what kind of society people live in, those societies have narratives. The narratives that any society or group espouses or believes becomes the framework on how that society or group functions and behaves. So let's look back at the pandemic. What was the narrative there? It was follow the science. Around the climate change debate, the narrative has been the science is settled. It is from that starting point of those two narratives that society has made its decisions concerning public policy. So let's look at the outcomes in our society of operating within that narrative. In the case of COVID, we had businesses lost, people isolated, and children's development stunted. In the case of climate change, we have had whole sectors of the energy production industry shut down, which has caused skyrocketing prices on almost everything. But what if the science that we follow isn't correct? What if the science really hasn't been settled? And spoiler alert, the science is never settled. That's the whole point of science. Now, as Mormons and believers in the Judeo-Christian tradition, we have been taught that we can't comment on science because we believe in a God. But as Mormons and believers, shouldn't we expect science to work seamlessly hand-in-hand with our religions? What if I told you it did? On this episode, I have on Russ Barlow. Russ is a man who, along with others, has dedicated a good portion of his life to learning and studying science. The fruit of that study is the universal model. The universal model is a look at science without an agenda. It is based on evidence and experiments that test the current scientific narrative. As I have looked at the universal model, it is hard to poke holes in what it teaches. When you approach the universal model from an honest perspective, what you find is that science and that the revealed word of God do walk seamlessly together. Throughout my conversation with Russ, my mind was blown several times at what the universal model not only teaches, but how it teaches you to think. Now, I normally don't do this, but you'll want to stick around and tune in in a couple of weeks for a follow-up conversation with Russ. It's going to be epic. Also, for this episode, you're going to want to go to the website mormonrenegade.com. There you'll find the pictures we reference in this episode, as well as a code for 20% off if you choose to buy the Universal Model Curriculum. All that's next on this episode of the Mormon Renegade Podcast. So I just want to take a moment to thank you, the listener. When I started this podcast, I wasn't sure if anyone would really listen. Now, to my surprise, this thing has taken on a life of its own. And that's all due to you, the listener, spending your time here with me. And it means a great deal to me. Now, as a husband and father, I'm keenly aware of how important time is. It feels like there's just never enough of it. So when you are spending your time here listening to this podcast, I feel a responsibility to never waste your time. In that spirit, as this podcast has grown, I feel like I need to do you, the listener, justice. I want to continue to produce good content and upgrade the audio quality. That takes better equipment and better software, and that all takes money. Now, I've tried to advertise, but you'd be surprised. There's not a lot of people wanting to advertise on a Mormon fundamentalist podcast. I know, surprising, right? Now, if you want to help support the podcast, you can do that one of two ways. The first is go over to mormonrenegade.com and hit the donate tab. There you can make a one-time donation, or you can go ahead and set it up to be a monthly recurring donation. Your choice entirely. Now, option number two, because I'm a capitalist, if you want to head on over to mormonrenegade.com, click on the store button, you're going to find that we've got some new swag out. We got some t-shirts, we have a tote, we have cell phone cases, water bottles, coffee cups, we got a bunch of stuff and more is going to be on the way. So, if you feel like that's something you could do, again, head on over to Mormon Renegade and check all that stuff out. 
If you're not in that position to do so, I completely understand. We're all squeezed right now with high gas prices and high inflation. So even if you can't, please keep listening and maybe keep the podcast in your prayers so we can continue to grow, produce good content, and better audio quality. Thank you. Listening to the Mormon Renegade Podcast. Welcome back to the Mormon Renegade Podcast. As always, you can get a hold of me uh, either by email at mormonrenegade at gmail.com. You can also get a hold of me on uh, Instagram and Twitter and Getter under the handle Mormon Renegade. Also, we have a website up, and that's mormonrenegade.com. So go check that out. Well, Russ, thanks for being here, man. I can't tell you how excited I am to talk to you. I'm glad to be here, Dave. It's kind of exciting. Yeah, so, you know, I, I've been to a couple different, like, um, Book of Mormon evidence conferences, and I've always just kind of peeked in and heard different presentations on the universal model. And I was always intrigued because I feel like it's science, but yet it's 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 not just science with with a religious twist. It's science. It, it feels like true science. Like I've never I've never looked at things like that before and felt the spirit. I remember sitting through school as a kid and just hating geology and, and stuff. I remember I had to take a course in soils uh, in college. And man, I was like, medieval torture was a lot more pleasant than than soils class. It would have had to have been. So for the work you do, I think is just so tremendous. Well, I have to tell you that it came about almost accidentally. Now, I've always loved science. When I was a kid, my mom, dad gave me a telescope when I was probably 10 or 12, just a little teeny little three inch Tasco telescope. And I froze my butt off outside in the middle of winter looking for stars and looking at at Saturn and Jupiter but I didn't really have any formal teaching there were no star parties I got to go to so it was just kind of all by myself and so science has always been interesting but mostly in the area of stars and planets and things and and what happened is in the 2000 economic downturn I'm in the construction industry and during that time is when the tech bubble burst and there was just kind of this crisis and we thought we'd go out of business and so in a moment of fear i decided oh no i needed a, a college degree because nobody would hire me if i lost my job sure and and i think that was the lord actually making me afraid to send me to college and so i went and one of the courses that was required it was a science course with a lab and I thought, I'm not going to take astronomy, even though I really love that. I'm going to take something different. I'm going to take a geology class. And then because I couldn't stand the thought of going through a humanities class, I convinced the professor to let me take concurrently a 400-level archaeology class with my geology class. And so because I was older, he figured I probably had to stay with it enough to go. And so 
um, I took those two concurrently. That just blew my doors off. I could not get enough because I was actually experiencing and seeing and understanding things, but I hadn't, I knew nothing about the universal model yet, but I was out on a, a, a field trip out to Red Rock State Park. And while we were there, this was a field trip that the professor, the lab professor had organized. And she was explaining all these different things about sandstone. And then she asked us this question is how did the red and white sandstone form? And it's not in layers. It just kind of looks like somebody took a paintbrush mm -hmm. and waved it over there with some white and red. And I was pretty excited to hear how it formed, except she says, we don't know. We don't, we have no idea how it formed. But in that moment, you know, people like call it serendipity kind of in, um, in some circles. But for me, that was the spirit, the Holy Ghost saying, you're going to know how this formed. And that was something I heard. You, you will know how this formed. I was so excited, my poor wife, because I went home and I said, honey, I got to start studying sand. And I don't know why, <laughs> but I'm, and I started collecting sand from everywhere around the world and just diving into this. It, it's funny what we put our wives through sometimes for us. Like when, when I, when I came, when I came home, when, when I had the prompting to do this podcast, now this is my first go, right? I mean, I've, I, I have zero experience to nothing as far as communications. I remember I came home with, with a laptop and a microphone. My wife's like, what are you going to do with that? And I said, I'm going to start a podcast. And she just kind of looked at me and she's like, you know, really with some of the other ideas you've had, this one isn't too bad, right? This, <laughs> you've had worse ideas. So uh, yeah, the, the stuff we put our wives through when we, when we, we tend to, to start something new like this has always got to be somewhat entertaining from their point of view. Right. Well, that, um, that event, and I spent, so I spent about four years or so just going through the college rat race and Gosh, I was frustrated because you, you really had no ability to question or ask questions, especially if I believed in creation or God. I just wanted to talk to the science about, you know, really exploring it. Could we actually ask these questions? And I was so irritated that they would put down every idea. In fact, I got so frustrated that the biology teacher, I just set out to prove him wrong and proved his test wrong. And it was, and it was more of a, I was just, I just was frustrated, but I started to blend my theology. In other words, I literally started to think what the smart guys were saying and taking what the, the Bible says. And that's, now that, that's what you're doing. You're kind of shoving, it's called eisegesis, where you shove in your worldview into the Bible. And so I'm thinking about, you know, how did billions of years and evolution fit and what the scriptures were saying. And I began to imagine epochs of time rather than days. And I began to imagine planets that were with dinosaurs out there somewhere being cobbled together to make this planet. And I think a lot of people in our circle, in the LDS circle, kind of have that. They're trying to mix these things and put them together. And I got to do that on, maybe you could call it a professional scale for a while. What what does that do to your faith when you start trying to do that? Well, it causes it's a faith crisis moment, and you if you believe and you're strong enough in your belief, then you just think, okay, I don't know, and it must it'll make sense somewhere. 
But if you don't really know for sure what your faith is, I was older. So I was in my older years, I'd already had a pretty solid foundation. But if I was a kid, and there were lots of young people there, I would say, gosh, you know, that old story that's in the Bible, that's kind of, it's just a myth. It's the same as the Babylonian myth of the Gilgamesh. It's the same as the Popol Vuh myth. It's the same as the Native American stories about bears and coyotes spreading stars across the sky. So these are creation myths that are dismissed as meaningless and pointless. And the Bible story would have to fit in that if you were just going to accept what was being taught in school. My daughter right now is in college. And uh, it's been interesting to watch because I feel like right now, the the college experience for someone of faith is is probably one of probably two maybe three things one is is that if you go there and like you said you weren't strong chances are you're going to come out believing even less than when you went in well i i would venture to say that today which has been 20 plus years since i went back today is is exponentially worse than it was and i think you go in with a strong testimony you still lose your testimony 90 yeah. percent of our 90 percent of the members of not just the, the mainstream church but of all divergent churches are going to lose their testimony that are, that are going to college right now and these numbers are known by the leadership of these different groups like the the leadership of the church they know that there's a massive outflow of members and one of the biggest issues is science science is a conflict because science has replaced in the modern minds of the young people they have more confidence in science yeah so that's yeah and you know the other option is, is that you go and you just shut up and you say the things they tell you know you re kind of regurgitate the things they ask you to regurgitate and what what i've seen happen there is that you have you all they've done is train an individual to you keep your mouth shut about your faith if you believe these crazy things right and i think that's one of the things that's so refreshing about the universal model is that honest questioning still exists there because i don't think that there is i think there was a time when you went to school whether that was just you know first through eighth grade or or on to college or whatever, that it was more about teaching a person how to think, not what to think. And I think that right now there's almost a militarism within, especially college, where you're going to toe that line if you want to get through. Well, and I want to stay tonight, I want to stay focused more on the universal model, but one of my most powerful presentations, because where I believe I take uh, history is is also of great interest to me. And so when I take history and science and I put it together with the covenant that God made first with Adam and then with Enoch and Noah and so on, there is a, there's an amazing storyline there. And I think it's actually a lot worse than simply telling them to shut up. I think when we send our kids to school today, we're literally sending them to the other church that, you know, the, the great and abominable church. And in my mind, and I think, and I've got, I've done a lot of research and I've got a pretty powerful presentation that I do on this. It is not a theory. 
It is literally, you watch the step-by-step process of how they've torn down and literally set out to take our children. And it coincides with the restoration of the gospel. It is a massive battle. And when we send our kids to public school, we are literally sending them to the enemy's school to be trained by the enemy. And think about this. If you're going to have an, if you want to have a school and you want to set it up, the first thing you want to do is get rid of what that enemy is going to teach. And so what they've done is cut out the Bible and prayer. So you send them to school and they literally won't allow your own churches, your own strength. They can't even use it. They have to be trained under the enemy. We might as well have sent Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over to Babylon to be trained as princes. That happened, and it's happening today, but it's worse. You know, that's funny you should say that, because just just this last week, I read a excerpt from one of Brigham Young's talks where he, he, said, he made it known. He's like, I'm not for government schools. Why would we send our kids to Babylon's schools? And so... He, he he definitely foresaw this coming. So I think that's enough on the negativity part of, the, uh, of it, right? I, I really want to focus, like you were saying, on the universal model. Because I feel like sometimes we can get dragged down by just complaining about something. And I'm sick of hearing what people are against. I want to hear what people are for. And one of the things that, that I, I'm starting to understand is that as believers of all stripes, whether you're a Mormon, a Mormon fundamentalist, whether you're a, a, a Baptist or a Calvinist, whatever the case is, we're going to have to kind of start thinking out of the box a little bit. And I think one of those boxes that we have to think out of is the education box. For sure. And I think then what we look at with science is not so much um, a replacement of the education as an idea that we when we send our kids, whatever they do, and they send them out into the world, we actually need to arm them with knowledge and with a way to get that knowledge if they don't have it. So those two things are fundamentally important. You can't just go into the enemy school and know nothing and then just try to regurgitate what your parents or grandparents have said and have no foundation because you'll get eaten up and spit out. And so when we look at, for example, in, in the Bible, we have to take what Genesis says, and if we can honestly look at it from a scientific point of view, there's an amazing amount of information that's right there. It's, it's actually more scientifically true than you might imagine. It, it describes the shape of the earth. It describes the original material the earth is made of. It describes the, the placement of the stuff and, and it's actually just in the first two chapters are, are literally books of information that are related to science. And that's what the universal model actually does. It's not a religious book. And so it doesn't quote the Bible. It doesn't say this is what the Bible said. Therefore, this is. It's a book based on science. And it, it's arduously long. And so you got to have some staying power to read all through the first volume is 800 pages, and it starts out by asking the questions, and then pages later, it gives you the answers. And so mm-hmm. it's it's like, how do you, Dean used to say it, Dean's the author, and he used to say, imagine if you told your neighbor, you're going to go out back and start exercising because tomorrow you're going to jump to the moon. 
That's that's kind of how big the universal model is. And I can attest to it because my first exposure to it, as I said, I had this, this experience at Red Rock, right? Well, let me finish that story up and then bring it into the universal model. So Rob Meldrum is a good friend of mine. I've known him for many years, long before he was doing his science in his information about Book of Mormon geography. He actually was in the construction industry as a window salesman, and he worked with me. He and I would get together. We'd work in the day. He'd stay at my house at night, and then we'd talk all night. And then later, he moved to Utah and worked for our company. So we were really close friends for quite a while. And then we kind of diverged. And this is the same year that I went into college. He actually started doing research for Dean Sessions as the researcher on the universal model. Hmm. And so for about four years, we had no contact with each other as he was learning the, the universal model side and I'm learning the modern science side. And then one day he calls and we have the most extraordinary experience that lasts a really long time. And he tells me about Dean Sessions, who actually has made sandstone in his garage. Hmm. And I'm thinking, oh, my word. And I was ready three o'clock in the morning. I was ready to get my car, drive down to Phoenix where Dean was. And I wanted to see this garage lab that made sandstone. We ended up arranging a meeting about three months later in Tucson at the rock show and went down there. And it was it was mind blowing. Uh, the next year, and this is in 2005, is when we got together and Dean and Rod and I, we took a, a 10 day scientific excursion to Mount St. Helens to do some research there. And that it was just a whirlwind after that. And within two years, I was full time editor. I'm not a professional editor. It was a calling. It was unbelievably spiritual and powerful when Dean and I both had an individual but separate, I mean, we had separate experiences that, that both confirmed that was my job. That ended up being more than 20,000 hours invested in the editing because I would check every single reference that Dean said. And my experience and training in the sciences gave me a very unique perspective because I, when I took science, I I didn't stop with just geology. I ended up taking chemistry and biology and archaeology, environmental science. I took every science class I could because it was just something was just it was on fire. And that give, gave me the ability to talk with biologists and geologists kind of in their language. And, but it also gave me the ability to kind of hold Dean accountable for some of the things. Now, this is Dean's book. He's the author. He's the founder of the Universal Model, and I'm grateful to him for what the work he's done and for his willingness to listen. But there are things in there, and I like to say this all the time, the Universal Model is true, even if it's not correct in everything that it says, because it's made by man. It's not perfect. It's not like this revelation that came down and boom, that's all there is to it. It is a magnificent, powerful example of how science should be conducted get out there experiment ask questions and so hopefully this is the catalyst to cause this next generation that like you said you couldn't hardly stand science but to want to do science because it's actually true it's based on spiritual and scriptural events and so that brings us up to the point that we're working on it so as you're editing this book Right. You're you're kind of going through there and 
you've already been taught out out of a, a university mm-hmm. it, at any point because i'm going to share a story here in a second at any point did you look and go why you know i feel like a lot of my time there was not as valuable as it could have been had i been out in the field with dean uh that's that's interesting because i actually didn't feel that way i was frustrated while i was in the school but when i got to working on the universal model i was so grateful to have had that exposure okay so it wasn't wasted time it was it allowed me to understand their thinking and it allowed me to understand Dean's thinking so I could put it together and talk it in terms of the language that's correct or if he misstated or didn't understand something I was able to bring those two things together so and I'm by no means am I this expert but I had a lot of formal training that allowed me to to do that and I think that was a blessing. Now, after that, once I was involved in the UM, I really have a hard time with the sciences themselves now as I go through the books and do things because I know so much more that it's just a lot more difficult to just turn a blind eye to so much that's misstated or wrong. Um, I don't know if I could even get through another class today. I don't I don't know. I'm a I'm a land surveyor by profession. And I remember I surveyed for a couple of summers and then I went to college to take courses in it. And I learned real quick that I was going to learn more by doing it than I was by sitting there and listening to someone tell me I was going to do it. And I remember this was driven home by the gentleman who actually put me through school he saw something in me and he was like, you're kind of good at this. You should probably stick with it. Let me put you through school. And I remember I came in one day after school, I'd always go by and his name was Doug and Doug was my father passed when I was 13. And in a lot of ways, Doug willingly stepped up to fill that void. But I remember I'd come in just irritated Russ. I'd be like, they're telling me to do this and this and this. And he just said, you're going to have to play the game a little bit. But if I ever catch you doing that, yeah, I'm going to break your legs. Don't do that. <laughs> so I, I remember feeling a certain amount of of uh, chafing, if you will, yep. being out in the field versus when I was in school. And that was the first time I made this this startling revelation that, well, maybe just because they wear ties doesn't make them necessarily authorities on on the subject. Right. And in, in our... Um experience talking with people that are in the professional that have have degrees if you're a degreed geologist that's doing field work like if you're a a geotech or somebody that has the hands-on experience we find that those people are hundred times more willing to listen because some of the things we propose are the mysteries they're not answered where we find absolute difficulty like just just a complete um, stonewalling is when they're just a professor or they're somebody that is the teacher and they're kind of trained on philosophy and theory and they've got all of that behind them but there's not as much field work that's a big huge difference in who's willing and has an open mind and is objective about these ideas versus who's not 
So yeah, hands-on, I think, is not only a better way to learn, but it's an open-minded way to learn as well. Yeah. So as, let, let's get back to your story here a little bit. So as you're editing all this, and and when we, I can only imagine the back and forth you and Dean must have had, right? Because, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, the first thing I think about is is like the founders when they were hammering out the 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 constitution, right? Right. I'm guessing neither of you are weak individuals. And so you're probably button heads a little bit, even lovingly, right? For sure. So Dean, Dean is a driver personality. And I think he has this, his contrarian ability, you know, this, this mindset means he's questioning everything. And that comes out pretty, pretty caustic in, in a lot of ways, because he just, you become, you become um, distrustful of any of these things because you've seen so much of it. And so he's, he came out really negative and people wouldn't really give him serious suggestions on what to change because he was so bent on this is the way it had to be. And so that was something different with me as he actually listened. I was probably the only one that could basically tell him we'd full of crap on this and, and he would listen. And, and I'd say that with, with a lot of respect because I got to see his notes and I got to see how he thought. And he had, you know, for example, just one chapter, chapter um, five is the magma pseudo theory. It's 65 pages long, but the, the work, the, the notebooks that went into it were like five or six big four inch notebooks with journal articles highlighted, annotated, and probably 10 books. And, and as we'd go along, I would buy every book that he had. I would get those. I would look at and read how his notations were. And I was just blown away at his ability to see it. But yet when you saw it, it's true. What he was saying was true. And sometimes because of my mindset, I had a hard time and I would have to be patient. And that was something I had to learn with the Lord is I had to be really patient. And we might talk for two or three hours on a subject. And then finally it would click and it would be like maybe this patience needed to work on me for a while. And then it would all of a sudden click and I'd know what he was trying to say. And I'd literally say, okay, Dean, I got to go now. Boom. I'd get off the phone, <laughs> get into that and, and start editing because I got it. And, and there were so many times where I couldn't understand or it was just, I thought he was nuts and it just took time and patience. Incidentally, <laughs> let me tell you a story. Um, when I first started, the first 65 pages took almost an entire year to edit. And it's because I was learning not just about the science, but I was also learning the spirit that I had to be in to do the editing. I literally had an experience that was similar to what Joseph Smith experienced when he had an argument with his wife, Emma, one time. And I had been sharp with my wife and I'd gone in there and I could not, the Lord would not let me write even one single word. And it was just, I, it was like my hands were frozen. My mind was off until I finally got it through my thick skull that I needed to go make it right with my wife and my children. And I had, that's the reason it took a year is because I spent a year more or less being trained how to listen to the spirit. And I couldn't have the influences of me being an honorary guy or, you know, being in that kind of a mindset and editing this book. That to me was one of the biggest testimonies of the truth that we were working with 
is because I couldn't do it unless I was absolutely of the mindset that I was willing to be an open, uh, open source with the Lord as much as possible. And I'm not saying I was that way all throughout the whole thing, but I had to learn that. And so for that first year, I took almost the entire year off at work just to focus and learn how to get in that kind of a, a mindset. You know, I think in some ways that makes a lot of sense for us because when when you're going about a book like that that is attempting to tell true world history, right? I mean, geology, how it was made. Um, I would think that you would have to be in a mindset to where you were humble enough to be able to take whatever answer the Lord had for you or whatever answer you and Dean came up with together. And I suppose I can only speak from my own experience when, when I'm fighting with someone, I tend to get pretty prideful, right? And if you're prideful, you're not going to be able to be teachable and you probably run into problems. So that actually makes a lot of sense. That's that, that experience lends a lot of credence to, to probably the, the, uh, the importance of, of the work you did there with the universal model. There were many other experiences along the way. And I want to read to you a quote. This comes from John Taylor. Now, John Taylor dedicated the Logan Temple in 1844. That's the only temple he dedicated. And when he was there praying in Logan the night before, he was asking the Lord what he should do and how he should dedicate this, this temple. And this is the this is the prayer from the first dedicatory prayer. Okay, so it's been rededicated, but this you can still find this online. But it says, He said, We, O God, a few of thy creatures have built this house unto thee, that it may be a house of order, a house of prayer, a place acceptable to thee. For the manifestation of thy will and the teaching and administration of ordinances and the instruction of thy people in all principles of, of science and intelligence pertaining to this life and the lives to come. Hmm. And that was a pretty eye-opening thing to imagine that the temples were being built for the teaching of scientific principles relating to, the, to this life and to the lives to come. So that puts it on a whole different level of what science means, right? Science is the true way of how worlds are created. And the endowment experience that Joseph instituted in Nauvoo first started off with the creation. And so in the endowment, you go through and you learn the entire creation process. Now, today, that's been kind of blended with modern man's ideas, philosophies about earth crashing together and solar disks and all those kind of things. So it's kind of the world's version mingled with the scriptures that tell us the story. But God means to tell us how to create worlds. And I think if you understand that, then the universal model becomes an eye-opening way of understanding some of those creation processes that I personally think will eventually be taught in temples. Wow. So as, as you guys are creating this book that, that will be known as the universal model, what is your hope for it? I mean, what, what are you wanting to do with it? Are you wanting to take it to 
to uh, public schools and, and put it in there and try to, you know, sell it as curriculum? What, is this meant for something as a supplement at home? What, what was the idea behind what this book was going to be? Well, in the beginning, the idea was just true science. And so as I edited it, I was learning. And then as I went through it, because my edit process would involve me taking what he had, and I would do such a massive edit, it was a complete rewrite. It's, it's not the kind of editor where you're just adding some punctuation, some you know, grammar here and there. It's a structural edit where it's a complete rewrite of the concepts, right? And then I would go through and then I would read it again, edit it a second time. And then I would have my wife come and read it aloud because I needed to, to see if the, the syntax and the flow and the cadence of the words would, would go right. And if she got stuck on anything, that would tell me, oh, she's not understanding and I would fix that. And then I would go through after I fixed it and reread it myself one last time. So by the time it got through, it had a minimum of five reads Whew. to get this ready. And so it was about truth. Well, what happened is my wife started taking the pages she would take these things and they would, she would extract and be teaching our kids in their homeschool. And so she's teaching our kids from this science that's not yet out to the public. And they're growing up with this and being taught. And then when the book finally came out and it's published and we're, you know, we have the celebration and we're excited and, and, you know, and for the first few hundred books, a couple thousand or so books are sold you know, there's this, this vibrance, oh, we're going to change the world and professors are going to read this. And so you have that kind of exuberance. And then reality starts to set in because you're not going to change this great and abominable institution of modern science that has tens of billions of dollars every year and has all of this history. That's not where it's going to be. And so my wife and I decided the real purpose of this is we have to change the lives of the children, of the up and coming. We've got to give them the truth about the creation. And so we started workbooks. We made workbooks that would take the curriculum my wife was teaching and started creating those so that they would align with you. would use the universal model as, the, as sort of the source text. But then you could learn, the, learn it on a way that's more um, reachable. Hmm. because it's a pretty big book it's a it's yeah. like i said earlier it's 800 pages in volume one and it's almost the same in volume two and so it's a slog for somebody unless they're really interested but it's so powerful that if you get through some of that and like if you have to just read the pictures but it's a it's a powerful text and we can jump into actually what's in it yeah, because I think your listeners are going to want to know what. Okay, we've been gabbing about all this stuff. What's what's in it? What's different? That's exactly where I was heading next. Is yeah, it's, we we've kind of set the table. Now let's dive into this beautiful steak you've created. So, so here's one of the first things. It's probably the most important. And if you just get through the first fifteen pages and you don't do anything else, it'll be worth every penny you've spent uh, that you've spent by it. And, and you can you know, we'll, we'll give your listeners a discount at our, to, to buy this if they want, but I'm telling you the first 15 pages actually teach us how to ask questions. That is probably the most important thing that we need to learn in our world today is how to ask the right questions and how to frame that question and the mindset that we should be in. 
that's such a big deal. It, it's the preface of all of our workbooks, the first few pages. It's in volume one and volume two as the introduction, and, and it's the question process. So let me just give that to you, break it down break, uh, roughly. So all questions can basically be grouped into six categories of who, what, where, when, why, and how. Okay, I'll go through those slow in a minute. But of those six, you can group them into four groups. Four of them are tangible things like who, that's the person, what is a thing, where is a place, and when is time. So we have time and, and location and person and object, right? Those are knowledge questions that give us knowledge. How and why are intangible and they're wisdom questions. Now, I realize that this is not a perfect thing. You can move them around a little, but sure. basically the tangible questions. Now, think about this. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve are told that they can partake, and actually it's Adam is alone who told this, and then he tells it to his wife. But when he's told, you can eat of all the trees of the, of the garden, the fruit of all the trees of the garden, except one. What was that one tree? It's the tree of knowledge. Now, we add the clarifier of good and evil, and that kind of diminishes what it really said there. Truth or the tree is knowledge. Okay, you, right. you can take when you take that knowledge, you're going to die. You're going to bring death into the into the world. Well, later on in both the New Testament, Paul gives us a partial um, a declaration of what truth is. But Joseph Smith receives a revelation that gives us a clear definition where he says, truth is knowledge of things as they are, as they were, and as they are to come. So mm -hmm. truth is knowledge. So what was that tree that they partook of? Knowledge, which is truth. So it's really the tree of truth, right? Right. And so what, what that really breaks down to is that we need to learn the four knowledge questions. We need to learn about people, about places, about times, and about locations. As we learn the knowledge, the visceral stuff about how things are made and, and that, then the Lord gives us the wisdom as to why. So, for example, when Adam is told to sacrifice after he's kicked out of the Garden of Eden and he's told to sacrifice and the angel comes and says, why do you offer sacrifice? He says, I know not, because he didn't have the wisdom as to why that sacrifice was necessary but he was told how, right? Not so sure. when, yep. when Nephi builds the ship, he doesn't ask the Lord, how do I build a ship? He goes to the Lord and says, where do I find the ore to make the tools? He asks a knowledge question. And that's what we need to do. We need to be asking the Lord knowledge questions. And those can be, for example, what does sand look like? Or uh, we're looking at the, does magma exist or is it lava? What causes lava? Where does it, does it happen? We know it happens, for example, that earthquakes happen mostly on the Pacific Ring of Fire and Plate boundaries. Mm -hmm. And we also know that at those locations uh, is where volcanoes, which is melted rock, where it shows up. So why do we think that that's only caused because of this molten stuff in the earth? It's, and the answer is, it is it's friction. Right. And so by asking the knowledge questions, then the Lord can give it to us. He can give us the wisdom of why that matters, why it's important that we know these things. 
So that's kind of the gist of the first section. The introduction of the book is about how to answer, how to ask questions, and then a little bit about how science, how we got here, you know, the discoveries and the dark age of science. And, that, you know, and that takes us to the first, first chapter. So those are the first, the first four chapters, the introductory chapters. I, I think that's huge because you, you expounded upon this idea of asking questions. And I've often said, when you ask the right question, then you get the answer you want. I also had well, you, a, get, you get the right answer, not just right. what you want, but you get right. the right answer. the right answer. Yep. I remember I had a political science professor once who said, "If I could, if if we could get everyone to ask the right questions, there would be politicians who get real nervous real fast, right?" And I I think I think that that the same thing goes for so, the sciences, right? Is yes. that you got to ask the right questions to get the right answers. And if you don't know what you're even asking about, then, or why you're asking about it, I think it'd be hard to come up with those answers. It's actually, it takes a little bit of time and effort to learn how to frame your questions properly. Because it's so often when something bad happens, we want to say, why is this happening to me? Or how am I supposed to fix this problem? That's our immediate knee-jerk reaction is to, to ask the hows and the whys. Rather than to reevaluate, I'm here. Where do I go next? What do I do? Who do I talk to? Right? These are things that can, that if we can just focus on getting the knowledge and putting things in order and working through it, then the wisdom will come. So knowledge and wisdom, huge, huge, huge. And, and there's actually called the learning process that it's laid out in the first few chapters of the UM, Universal Model. It actually lays out that learning process. And it teaches something about that attitude, too, about questioning whether we're skeptical or partial or biased, those things, too. We need to learn to be objective. And that, that means question everything with an open mind. Question with an open mind being objective about what What's the options? What can we think of out there that's different? Or, you know, just that in 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 some ways, it's pretty revolutionary, right? Because I don't think that that what we're seeing now coming out is necessarily that idea of questioning with boldness, right? We're getting a lot of, well, we've done the science for you. Now it's your job to sit there and partake in all of this that's happened before and it, it really takes those questions you know that you talked about out of the equation sure and as i understand it the science is never really settled i mean you're always questioning to some extent and that's good and healthy is it not well, especially, especially man science because we don't know now ultimately god is the absolute truth and so there is an absolute truth. And in modern science, that's rejected entirely. And not just modern science, but modern education is that there is this, this concept of not being able to be certain about anything, not know anything. And that's in, in philosophical circles. That's even taken to, do I really exist? Or am I just a figment of my imagination? And am I imagining that I'm having this conversation with Dave in my mind? And in reality, I'm nothing more than just that, a figment of my imagination. And so 
that's kind of where it's gotten to. And, and yeah, we, we've got to ask questions, but we've got to be objective. Here's a little tiny twist on things. How many times have we thought to be critical thinkers? What does that really mean? What does it mean to be critical? To criticize? Right. Right. And so literally our mindsets are being warped by this, this idea that we need to be critical and, and, and castigate things and poke, you know, we don't need to be critical. We need to be objective. And if, that's a whole, that's literally a whole spiritual reversal of the outcome of what we're taught in schools, not to be critical, to not be critical of others, not be critical of people's ideas, but to be objective. That's a pretty huge thing, too. Yeah, I'm just thinking here about what that would actually look like in, in practical application. I suppose if if you're critical, you would look to poke holes in it. I suppose if you're objective, you'd say, well, let's try that out and see what happens. Or let's extract what, okay, let's look at that objectively and say, okay, we've got this and this and this that makes sense. Okay, I don't agree with that, but I don't have to be critical thinking. I have to be objective about what it is. And it's it's truly a mindset shift. It's a way of saying, okay, whatever your ideology, you know, yours or the, your neighbors or whatever you do. I mean, I ask this question a lot of times when I start a presentation is what do you know that you know is not, or what do you believe that you know is not true? Think about that. What do you believe, Dave, that you know is not true? That I can continue to eat McDonald's and not gain weight. Yeah, but you are, you know that's not true. Right, I do. But yeah. you don't believe that. No, I'm right. <laughs> so, I hope for that, but yeah, no, you're you're right. Yeah, the answer is nothing. Nothing. Yeah, I can't think of anything. Right. I mean, if if we were if we were to do that, it would just be irrational. Okay, so now let's let's you know you and I because just of our life's experiences, we differ on something. I guarantee you something somewhere we differ. Now, if we think that you cannot be, I'm not wrong in any way, right? There's no matter what I am going to just, I'm just going to be right and you're wrong. Okay. Well, how do we, there's no advancement there. There's no reasoning. Right. So the first thing we have to do is accept the possibility that something I believe might not be true. And that's being open-minded and that's being objective to listen and to understand and say, okay, let's objectively reason this out. Not critically. I'm not going to come at you. Well, you're wrong because you, you know, this is what they say. But I have to be objective in that. So when I'm understanding the science and I'm, I'm looking at it objectively, then that gives me the ability to open up possibilities that I would not have otherwise if I was just being critical about the UM theory or critical about, or even about modern science. Let's not be critical. Let's be open-minded. Even what do they see? Because we're looking at the same data. What are they seeing? And then let's look at it and say, all right, now what do we see? How can we interpret that differently? Because we've got this knowledge. But that also has to make the assumption that both parties are interested in the correct answer and not necessarily an expedient answer, right? If we're to become united, yes, but I don't have to have you agreeing to that for me to be open-minded. I can listen to you, take what you have to say, and I can open-mindedly or objectively consider that, and that's for me, 
right? Hopefully you will. But if you don't, that, you know, I don't have to live or die on your decision. What I do is I lo I'm looking at the universal model and I'm saying objectively, or if I'm open-minded about what it's saying, then I'm going to say, you know what, there's something in here. I don't agree with this, but this makes a lot of sense. Instead of being critical and just shutting the book and saying, okay, we're done because it doesn't align with what modern science says. That's what modern science wants to do is shut the door. They don't want you to bring up creation. They don't want you to talk about something that's other than evolution. They literally will cut you off at the, uh, you know, they cut your legs right off. You can't do it. You, they won't even allow it in and have a discussion about it. And so if we can be objective and we can consider these things, you know, then, then we can, I think we can come together in some kind of unity. Right. That's great. What else is in the book? Well, it's the science itself. So the big thing is the earth is a hot molten earth, according to modern science. And the universal model says it's water. Okay, so let's let's dive in a little bit about what modern science says. So, it, and correct me if I'm wrong here, because you you are well versed both in the universal model as well as in 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 modern science, so to speak. Mm -hmm. There's this idea that there is a molten core at the center of the Earth, right? And that thing kind of spins as well, and then there's kind of crusts and layers on top of that is that correct that's right okay so let's let's start with where that idea came from okay in the late 1700s this is during the scottish enlightenment by the way whenever you hear the word enlightenment that that means is that we're shifting from god to humanist thinking okay that i'm smart you know the intellect of man so enlightenment thinking means man is becoming smarter and He's replacing God with his own intellect. But anyway, during the Scottish Enlightenment, there's this guy named James Hutton. He's an atheist who lives in Scotland in the late 1700s, and he publishes a, uh, his paper called Theory of Geology in 1784. And the geologists accept pretty much his theories about the Earth, and he says it was incalculably old and hot at its center. He didn't have the makeup yet of the Earth. So he publishes this, but it it kind of just falls on deaf ears and it goes away for about 40 years or so and he dies and and then a british geologist charles lyell picks that work up and publishes principles of geology and when he does he includes james hutton's ideas about the earth being incalculably old and he coins this term called uniformitarianism meaning that we can we look at the way events are happening now, and they've always happened that way, he completely discredits any catastrophism, which include the flood. Anyway, this book is published in January of 1830. So it's, it is the most important book in the sciences that shifts the whole modern science viewpoint that the earth is incalculably old, and eventually that'll be billions, but we'll get to that later on, okay? And it's hot at its core. It's so popular, it's repented 12 times. The very next year, it's given as gift to Charles Darwin as he gets on board. He's 22 years old. He gets on board the HMS Beagle. And it opens his mind to the Earth time, which makes evolution possible. So this book, published in 1830, is the moment. That's, the, that's when the whole of modern science changes its ideas about the hot molten Earth. It's 
that is incalculably old. And so later on, what we see in our textbooks today is that you've got a, a nickel iron core and it's surrounded by a molten, it spins inside this kind of molten and then a go further out of a semi-molten and then you've got the crust on it. Now, you know, that's that's a super simplified sure. description. And the crust is pretty thin. So crust is on average about 125,000 feet. It's thinner in the ocean, thicker in the in the continents, but this crust is pretty thin and everything else is either molten or semi-molten down to this core. Now, why they think that is that the surface rocks are like granites, the silicates most common, and they have a weight of 2.7 grams per cubic centimeter. What that means is it's kind of a lightweight. Imagine lightweight, imagine picking up a piece of pumice or maybe a pine cone, right? And so a pine cone has this much weight. And then they think, well, the mass of the earth must be this. And so we've got to have something heavier in the middle to equal it all out. And so the pine cone is the lightweight stuff. And then the solid log is the heavy stuff. Well, that heavy stuff is the nickel iron core. And so they've assumed that that's how this has to be made up because they have to come up with something heavy enough to answer the weight of the earth. And that's how they come up with the idea of a nickel iron core. Was there ever any pushback on this the on this theory? I mean, for did sure. anyone ever say, "Wait, let's slow our roll for a second. Let's let's yep. see if we can't experiment." In the 1700s, there was a debate between a group called the Plutonists and the Neptunists, and the Plutonists believed that the Earth was molten in the middle. That's James Hutton and his ideas, and the other, the Neptunists, believed that the Earth was formed in water, like the Bible says. So for, for years, that was the accepted creation format is that things were formed in water, that Noah's flood, flood created all the layers. That was pretty well accepted for hundreds of years until this change. But there are some questions that couldn't be answered that they just couldn't satisfactorily answer. And that is how granites at the Cape of South Africa got shaped. They couldn't answer where the heat comes from that powers the volcanoes. So those things, because they couldn't answer them, eventually fell to the idea that the Earth is a hot molten planet because they saw lava and this, this melted rock that's coming out of volcanoes has to come from somewhere. And so they just assumed it must be this hot molten Earth that's coming up from underneath. So in the, in the volume two of the UM, there's a table that kind of talks about all the different ways that we as humans have determine the age of the earth. The first was the Bible. But then we've been we've done optical luminescence. We've looked at how long the seas are there. We've looked at how the earth must cool over periods of time, the orbital velocities of how a planet should slow down. So all these really complicated ways of doing it. And so the age of the earth has swung from, from thousands to trillions of years. And now it's kind of back at 4.54 billion years. That's the, the latest modern science. And I'll talk about how they think that in a little bit. But what they think is, is that the inside of the earth is radioactive and radioactivity is keeping the crust melted. Hmm. And keeping, not the crust, keeping the insides melted of the earth. So it's radioactive that's done that. But one of the questions we ask in the universal model is if the inside of the earth is radioactive, and lava comes out and flows out on the surface like we see pretty much anywhere. You're in Idaho, right, I think? 
I, um, I'm in Utah now. Yeah. Utah. Okay. So you've got the in southern Utah in Delta, there's lava flows in Idaho. There's lava. There's lava flows everywhere. How many times have you seen a lava flow with a sign posted on it that says radioactive lava flow? Never. And that's a question I was going to ask if it was if that core was radioactive. And again, I'm not a physicist. Mm -hmm. So but the half life on on radiation is pretty long. Right. It, it depends on the, the product. But if it's uh, uranium, then, yeah, it's four point five billion um, radioactive uranium, four and a half billion years. That's the half life. Carbon-14 is 5,720. Strontium, uranium, all these different, they have, they have all these different half-lives, right? But the bottom line is, is that radioactive lava should be present if radioactivity is melting the rock. But here's this kind of circular reasoning that makes no sense. They say that melted rock resets the radioactive clock. So if melting the rock destroys the radioactivity, how does it stay radioactive? And if it comes out on the surface, why is it not radioactive if it was coming from a radioactive source? Right. It makes no sense. Here's another question, and the UM doesn't follow this linearly. That's a lot. We're kind of bouncing a little back sure. and forth. But one of the discussions we have later on in the the book is about where do we find uranium ore when we mine it? Do we find it deep or do we find it on the surface? Deep. We find it on the surface. It's actually a hydrothermal rock, which means it's found in thermal vents. Oh, I thought oh, I thought you were talking about mining for ores. I am talking about mining for ores. Uranium ore is only found fairly, when I say surface, I'm not talking like laying on the surface. Okay, all right. I'm talking, you know, in, in the first few hundred or thousand or so feet of the earth. In the okay, okay, I got you. I got because, you. I was using a relatively different <laughs> yeah, that, idea of surface, right. and I apologize. No, it's okay. It's just, it's understanding. One of the things we talk about in the UM is being clear about what we say. And, you know, we have to define our terms. And so we do. We define what magma means and we define what lava means. And we actually call it intrusive lava if it's melted rock under the crust and extrusive if you see it. Because okay. we know melted rock occurs. But we call magma a pseudo-theory that's not proven. It's taught as if it's a fact, but it's not proven. But anyway, so my point is, is that radioactive uranium is the one that has this half-life of four and a half billion years. Radioactive uranium is also heavy, and so that should be this, it should have sunk down into the core of the earth. But we mine uranium clear up here on the surface in the vent, in hydrothermal vents, and then we process that. But when you go into a, a cave or somewhere that uranium exists, it's not hot in that cave. You can find right. Geiger counter, and there is radioactivity in there, but it's not hot. And so there's this conflict about radioactivity being hot enough to melt the earth and yet doesn't show up in the lava flows and then the uranium is found here on the surface in a cold mine it's not hot and have have the proponents of, uh, of modern science been able to explain those those uh contradictions if you will at all with any certainty um, not that I've seen. Um, they have a lot of theories, a lot of ideas, but there's a certain 
most of it's built on the acceptance of the theory that the Earth is a hot molten planet. So they're starting with the with the the answer already in mind, and then trying to find supporting evidence to to justify their preconceived notion. Is that a fair assessment? For sure. And it's been for two hundred years that we've been taught this, right? It, when right. principles of geology came out, that was the textbook. That was the source of the textbooks. And so not just you, but your parents and grandparents and great grandparents were all taught that the earth is a hot molten core. And so you've just accepted it. Nobody's really ever questioned it about what the earth is. Now, if we read the creation account in the Bible, it, it's pretty clear what it says that you know, chapter one, Genesis chapter one, verse one says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and God moved, the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. So, and, and then for 16 times the word water is mentioned in the first few verses of Scripture. Water is the important element. And so it should be pretty simple to say, let's go look. And then we, we go out in space and we look at planets and moons, and, and, and water is everywhere in the universe. And that's something they didn't know. For example, you've probably seen Hubble telescope pictures, right? Everybody's yep. seen those beautiful pictures. Well, just shortly after the Hubble, they sent up another satellite called the SOHO satellite, was designed to go stare at the sun and because they wanted to study the sun. When they sent it up there and they opened the hood, the lens, it was blurry. Now, when they first sent the Hubble up, they had ground the mirror, ground the lens on the on the Hubble, actually ground the mirror wrong. And so it was out of focus and it was basically a billion dollar mistake. <laughs> and so they, they came up with a solution that they actually created a corrective lens and then they sent the space shuttle up and they installed the lens on the Hubble that returned it to functioning. You know, and that was like, yahoo, we saved the, the day, right? Well, shortly after the Hubble problem, the SOHO satellite was also blurry, and it was like just a double whammy that NASA had really just fumbled again. But in the process, the alignment gyros things had been, and they, as they aligned the telescope directly with the sun, it actually cleared up, and they realized that what was making it foggy was water vapor on the lens, not not the ground, not the lens ground wrong. What that means is that a million miles out of space, there was water that was able to condensate, just like in your shower mirror, it condensated on the lens of this Whoa. liquid water a million miles out into space. Yeah, because I'm just trying to wrap my mind around that for a second, because whether it's because of a movie or maybe something I was taught, I always thought that if there was water in space, it was supposed to freeze instantly, right? Well, it's a, yeah, it's more than 300 degrees below zero, but why it doesn't freeze is there's no pressure because there's no overlying atmosphere. Oh, okay. And so just like on, in, on the Earth, at sea level, water will change from liquid to gas at, two, at 100 degrees Celsius at sea level. But as you go up in elevation then the temperature is lower and lower and lower. So it'll turn to gas, you know, at 97, 95, 94. So the higher you go, the more that it will turn to gas at a lower pressure. And if you get out in space, there is no pressure. And so 
that that water can, can turn into a gas and then it condensated on the lens of that telescope of that satellite wow so there was another event that happened a guy named charles towns he invented what's called a maser now that was kind of the precursor to the laser but the maser was a device to look out into space and actually look at these majors these these uh, signal emitters and so they had time on the radio telescope they proved their concept and they said well we still have some time what can we do and we they tuned it to the water line because it was pretty close to what they were doing they tuned the telescope and then they turned it to the orion star cloud now for those that don't know the orion star cloud is one of the most beautiful things in the sky that you can see through a telescope it is it is massively beautiful it's considered the birthplace of stars and it is it is fantastically beautiful if you know take a minute google up look at the Orion Nebula, and you'll see how incredibly beautiful it is. So he turns the radio telescope to here, and all of a sudden the waterline is so powerful that when they published their article, they said it must be raining in Orion huh. because there's so much water in the Orion star cloud. Wow. Which again is something you don't hear, right? I mean, even now, it's not something that's widely talked about. Not at all. Huh. Now let's go through the planets. This is from NASA. This is from space scientists. So it's not something that just UM says. This is actually what they say is that there was water on Mercury, probably a trillion tons of water. There was an ocean on Venus that covered the entire surface of Venus at one time. The Mars Hydro Valley has a it has a canyon that is that makes the Grand Canyon look like a tiny little creek. And it's a hydro valley. They call it the Mars Hydro Valley because they know the whole thing was shaped by water. Elon Musk said one of the most important discoveries they in the last 25 years is the discovery that there's water ice on Mars. And it's actually extraordinarily, there's an extraordinary amount of water ice on Mars at the poles, like 60%. So it's it's pretty high. Jupiter has the atmospheres of Jupiter are water, they're hydroatmospheres. Saturn has it, the rings of Saturn are ice. The moon, one of the moons around Saturn, uh, Enceladus, actually has a hydro fountain that is spewing water out hundreds and hundreds of miles into space. And the Cassini spacecraft, when it looped around it, flew through it to see what it was, and it's, it's water. And so this moon, this hydro moon is literally spewing water out into space that's orbiting Saturn. So all of these planets and most of the moons are all water planets, water bodies, water moons, hydro moons, we call them in the UM. Huh. You see, water is like, is everywhere. Well, and now, it, okay, so I'm just thinking out loud here. If that's NASA's finding, now you have to say that it seems to be every other planet in our solar system is made up of water except ours. Well, there you go. Now, there's a good question to ask. Why don't they ask that question? Because problem. it creates the problem that the Earth isn't a water planet. And if the Earth is a water planet, all of a sudden the Bible starts having some truth. And we can't have that. <laughs> yeah. So here, 
let me ask you a question, Dave. Where's the last place you would imagine water? Last place in the in the whole, you know, everything that you've ever done. You mean on Earth or just anywhere? Yeah, anywhere. Well, we know it's all over space now. We know that most of the planets are. I would say that maybe someplace with absolutely no water. I'd say the Sahara. Can you give me? Uh, can you let me share screen? Yeah. Go to you have to go uh, go to your security and, and allow me to share it. Okay, give me just one second here. Oh, I stink at this. And this is why I edit Russ right That's here. Okay. Security. Yep, down at the bottom at security, the top thing it should allow participants or something like that. Okay, I'm I got participants up. Um, it's under the security tab. And it's I think it's the very top choice on the security tab that says. I'm looking for the security tab. Down at the very bottom, right next to participants and stop video. Oh, crap. There it is. Okay. And it says lock meeting, enable waiting room. Hide profile pics, share screen, allow. There, you go. there we go. Okay. All right. So, what do you think of that? That's the sun, and that's how much water's on the sun. Water on the sun. Is so that mind blowing? That is mind blowing. Can can. Would you be opposed to sending just sending me a picture of this slide so I can include it in the show notes? Sure, I'll send that after we're done. Okay. Right, right now it's just a it's a it's kind of the layout of a slideshow, so it's a you know PowerPoint. I've got other. I'll get rid of these lines. You're good. Okay, so now I'm going to ask a real stupid question, and you're look. I I warned you up front. I wasn't a science guy to start, right? I in some ways I'm still not, but I find mm -hmm. myself getting more curious. How does water not boil off and become vapor on the sun? Okay, now you're asking some questions, but you need to, you need to rephrase that question. You ask a how question. Can you rephrase that at all? You're, I'm going to give you the kind of put you on the hot seat for your audience, right? How do you change that question to a knowledge question? Why doesn't water? No, Okay, I'm screwing this up, and I know I'm screwing this up. That's so bear okay. with me. But, but the thing is, is everybody needs to realize that getting in this mindset doesn't just happen naturally. You have to take some time to think about that, right? And so you might ask, so water is on the sun, right? What process would allow water to exist on the sun? Okay, all right. Okay, and then you might, well, let's talk about the sun and some of the crazy things about the sun. For example, the surface of the sun's about 5,000 degrees Kelvin, but a million, if you go out here to this out, the corona out here, you see my right. arrow, it's a million degrees. How is it hotter away from the source? Gosh, it makes no sense. I, with, so this, you uh, see, this is some of the things that we need to get 
people engaged in the science looking at different ways do you know that you can actually and there's a youtube you can look this up you can actually beam sound into water and create light sound in water will create light huh so what's the process for that well have you ever read where the Book of Mormon, where Nephi is told by God, if you say to that mountain, be thou removed, and it would? Right. Or the brother Jared that said to the mountain, Zaren, move, and it was? And if you read the Book of Abraham, it says, and the gods ordered the materials, and they watched until they obeyed. And then Christ, when he's on earth, he commands the elements, and they obey. What's the force that Christ is using to cause the wind or the water to obey his voice? The priesthood. It's a power, though. It's a theme. It's not just some metaphysical ideology. Right. He's literally controlling something. He's commanding something, and it's responding. The voice of his word is causing things to change. Oh, okay. Now, the science behind that is, is beyond our reach. But the questions that we can ask about water on the sun should cause us to ask other questions like, is the sun really producing light because of radioactivity? Is it really a hydrogen-hydrogen burn, which is what they say two hydrogen atoms are being fused together to create deuterium or heavy hydrogen on its way to becoming helium, this this process that's happening. Wow. But I want to just kind of pause from the water to get away from the sun because, you know, I that was kind of produce this idea that you can see there's water everywhere, right? Right. And I want to come back to this question right here: that water is in rocks, in all rocks on the earth. So we've gone through the solar system. We've got water on the planets. We've got water on the sun. We've got water in the star cloud in Orion. We've got water in interstellar, intrastellar space between a million miles out. So we've established that there's water everywhere. Then let's come back to Earth and let's look at water in the rocks on the Earth. That piece of obsidian right there has those two, that's a 10 milliliter shot glass, that's approximately how much water is in that rock. And if that water were extracted, it would look like that pumice. Whoa. So <laughs> is this something that we've always known that you know water was in obsidian? Um, not at all. We, we know it now because if you heat the obsidian up, it will pop. Because the water, when, when liquid water changes to a gas, it goes through that phase change, it expands 1,700 times. So like one gallon of water would expand to 1,700 gallons of steam. Okay. There's an enormous amount of pressure that's built up in that process of changing. So when you have a campfire and you get some rocks and you put them around the campfire and you'll notice sometimes they pop. Right. That's, that's because there's water in that rock. Uh -huh. That's why it pops. 
And once the water is evacuated, so if you heat that rock up slowly, then the water will migrate out and it will actually come out of that rock and then it won't pop once the water's out. But if the, wa if the rock is heated up with water in it, then it will pop. Now, obsidian will always pop because there's so much water in it. It's such a high, and, and that water is trapped in the, the molecular structure of the obsidian. I got to tell you, the first thing that's come into my mind is the story of Moses when he causes water to come out of a rock, right? He strikes the rock and it, it, it comes out. And, mm -hmm. and I'm thinking about other things like, if if this was if this it's obviously true right because you've done the you've done the experiments you've shown mm -hmm. it to be true this idea of a water shortage might not be a shortage at all it may just be a a, a uh, an inability to look at the science to quote quote one of my talking. favorite people the science to quote this to to go get it out of maybe some places we hadn't thought of getting it before. As a matter of fact, in our UM workbook, we actually take the kids out and show them how they can prove there's water in rock. And I take them to a road cut over here. It's, a, it's an area that's rhyolite, which is kind of a, it's a volcanic rock. And we got about a softball sized rock we had we got 26 different samples of rock. This is our our kids did this in their homeschool. And they collected these rocks and we did an experiment and we showed how much water is in that one rock. Literally did the experiment, the kids could see it. Then we put that in. Now we don't have the ability to capture that water because you know we're not we're not that sophisticated. But we put it in the oven and we heat the rock up until the water evacuated, heating it up at 500 degrees for two hours. And we did all the steps. What we did is we collected all the rocks, we scrubbed them all off and got all the dirt so they're clean. And then we let them sit in the house for a full week. So they'd be dry and they'd be at the same temperature. Everything is at the same temperature, right? And then we took the temperature, weighed them twice so we'd have an average of the two ways, put them in the oven. When we took them out, we let them sit there for a full 24 hours before we weighed them. So they'd be completely cool. And then we tested them, weighed them again. And it had this one rock. I'm gonna see if I can find the, the picture here. I know I have it close by. And anyway, this one rock had the equivalent of about 10, uh, you know, had a little, ha like half a shot glass in this softball sized rock that came out of that crystalline rock. If you extrapolated that to how much mountain there was in this little road cut, there is, there was more water trapped in the rock than we had available in Lake Mead and all the rivers up and down the whole entire. Okay? This is this is real science that we could find a way to do. It. And there's a guy actually, a guy named Mark Burr who owns Primary Water Resources. Actually, he doesn't own it; he's a partner in it. And they're doing that. They're looking for crystalline, and they call it primary water because they're looking for water in not normal sources. He didn't know anything about the UM until when he found out about it. It was like mind-blowing because that was the science behind what they were trying to find that they that they had detected. So there is there are people out there that are taking this pretty serious. I was just thinking about starting another company and getting 
exploded like the oil companies just with water but well, yeah. it's 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 gold actually we did a presentation to the uh, water conservancy board in iron county in cedar city about three years ago to propose this idea but it's so novel that they just couldn't get a referendum to have people say yeah we'll go spend some money on this crazy new idea what was Okay, I got to ask about this, then I want to go to what the universal model has to say about the planet. But I'm fascinated with this idea of you giving this, this presentation to a uh, uh, an elected board, right, out mm -hmm. there in Iron County. Did they look at you like you were crazy? What What was their, what was their take on it after you were done? Well, um, there were some there were some pretty serious interests because we we didn't just talk theory. We had actually gone out and done some seismic profiles in Chekshani Cliffs in Iron County, where we um, Mark Burr actually set up these little seismic things, and they would and they would read this. There's another company in in Utah called Willow Stick, and they trace groundwater using electrical currents and and the magnetic and, and the the signature on water. And they would, their, their kind of primary model is to detect leakage before dams fail, right? right. That's, that's a general, they, they probably do more than that, but I know that's one of their big things, right? Well, a couple of their guys have actually gone on my tours that I take to the Grand Canyon and talk about this. They are absolutely thinking this is, this is cool science and it's, they've got, they know it because they've done some of their own detection about how water is moving through the earth and you know, so there are little inroads, but like I say, never with the theory side in the, in the colleges, only with the technical side that are involved in the knowing and the doing, and, and they see the possibility of this. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. Now let's, we've talked a little bit about what modern science says the earth is made out of. We then went back and said, okay, but let's look at all the other planets out in space. And then let's just look at space itself and how water con condescends on, on satellites. What's the universal models? What, what does it have to say about what the earth is, what it's made out of? So the, the earth is formed. It's a water planet. It's a hydro planet. And, um, so is there a core then, or is it just all water? Well, let me let me just show you this right here. I'll share this screen again. Okay, so that's kind of the textbook view of what the Earth looks like, right? The solid inner core, right. the outer core. We talked about that, right? Mm -hmm. This is what the universal model proposes, is that it's some kind of a solid ice. Now, we have not seen the center, and neither have they. Nobody has. So all we know is that we can look at the same data. We know that there is a liquid core in the Earth. Something's liquid because the pressure waves from earthquakes don't penetrate the liquid core. And that's the thing is, is that um, when you have an earthquake that happens up here on this side, it sends a shock wave all around the Earth. Well, when it hits this liquid core, it doesn't go through it. It can, it can deflect around it but it doesn't go through it. So certain waves don't go through the water, through the liquid. They think the liquid is molten rock. We think the liquid is water. So we just know that it's liquid. We also know that the plates are floating on something. Right. And, and the plates, I don't have that slide in this show, 
I'm, I've done these, a lot of these. I'm kind of, I've been bouncing around trying to find one that I can show you, but I don't have the one to show the seismic tomography, which is a, it's basically like the ultrasound for the earth. And seismic tomography will take a look and it'll take like a slice through this part of the, the earth. And it looks at the profile of the temperature and they, they know the temperature based on the sound waves that are passing through stuff, right? And it turns out that the hotter areas are always around the fault zones, like this Pacific Ring of Fire that comes up here in this model that is created for the universal model. You see kind of that blue area? Yep. That blue area is the cooler parts. The red is really, this is actually modeled after what the seismic tomography shows. Huh. And so it's actually hotter at the surface than it is down from what we can see. Now, there have been other experiments that have proven this out. For example, the two deepest boreholes in the world, one of them is in Germany and the other is in Russia. And the Russian, the Kola Superdeep borehole is like 25,000 feet thick or down, okay? So they, they drilled this hole. And the reason that they couldn't go any further is it started to get too hot. And you might think on the surface, oh, that proves that the Earth is melting at its core. But you got to realize that you're 4,000 miles to the center of the Earth. And they were only about five miles deep. Right. Okay, so they're, they're not that deep at all. And how is it possible that it could be that hot? If it was as hot as that thermal gradient was showing, it would be considerably hotter than the surface of the sun down inside the Earth. And there's no account for how that could be, how much, how it could be that hot. And so they kind of miss that point altogether. They just simply don't know how it got hot. But they had a clue when they were drilling. During a time it was quiet, it was on Christmas Day, there was an earthquake. And all of a sudden there was an anomalous heat spike and it happened right exactly where there was a fault line. Oh. And what is, that, what is that telling them? They did not get this, that the fault line is the source of the heat, the friction from the, you know, just like when you rub your hands. If you rub your hands together, you can produce about right. two to four pounds of pressure. Well, if you move 10,000 feet of rock, then you're producing enough pressure to melt rock. I mean, you, you, all you have to do is move it one millimeter and it's produced enough heat to melt rock at mm. 10,000 feet of rock. And this is 25,000 feet down, right? So right. you're in an area where movement, rock movement. And then you might say, okay, if rock movement does it, is there any time on the earth that rocks are moving? Well, have you ever been to the ocean and seen the ocean tides? Yeah. The same thing's happening on the earth. The earth is experiencing earth tides. The earth is going up and down about eight inches or so average twice a day. So as the earth is, the earth's crust is going up and down, it's so subtle that you don't feel it or see it, but it's going up and down every day. And it's creating heat because of the frictional movement of that all that rock moving. There's an enormous amount of latent heat that's built up without any earthquakes, just simply because the Earth is moving. I, I can I can attest to that because uh, as a surveyor, we use GPS and we have to have certain we call them geoids, and they help to uh, kind of take out some of that wiggle, so to speak. Exactly, because it, it's. It's not that big of a deal. Eight inches isn't that big of a deal until you're trying to be precise on a on a survey, right? Right. And uh, you know, and it wants to get down to the you know the fraction of an inch. And so they kind of you talk about. I'm sure you've heard this all the time. You have these 
geodesic survey marker points and they're supposedly yep. these fixed points, but they're not. They actually, there, there has to be a little bit of an algorithm built in to be able, because it's moving. The earth is constantly moving, little tiny bits. Well, sometimes little tiny bits. I mean, you can go to Yellowstone and survey markers you put in there will get pushed all the way out. The same with Alaska. Alaska has the same effect only because of the permafrost and that sort of thing. It'll, it'll push great big iron pipes right out of the ground. Yeah, that's so fascinating, isn't it? And that's because the Earth itself is an oblate sphere. In other words, it's like egg-shaped. And, and what's shaping that is the moon. As it's going around the Earth, it's kind of dragging the Earth with it. And as it does that, it causes the Earth's crust to flex. And when that does, it heats the, it heats the Earth's crust up. Oh. And so... Oh, go ahead. One of, the, one of the things that comes to that, not only are you building up heat, but you're building up electricity. Right. How's that, how's that for cool? So let, let me ask you this. If, if, if the earth is heaving up eight inches up and down every day, why don't we experience, and I'm just, forgive, forgive the question, I'm, my simple mind here, why aren't we seeing more cracks in concrete? Why aren't we seeing more cracks in asphalt? Well, because eight inches is, um, in the scheme of things, eight inches is nothing. It's, it's so small that it was undetected for hundreds of years. They only barely detected that in the last 20 years. Okay, so it's so slight that even the seismometers don't pick up that movement. And it was just because there was some anomalous recording from GPS satellites that said something's going on here, something's moving. And then they began to look at it. But it's so slight that unless you actually were looking for it, you just, you would, it would be imperceptible. And that's so that's that's why now if they're if it builds up or, or pressure builds up and this the slight movement is constantly just adding pressure and eventually that pressure builds up to the point where something's going to move there's a buildup in it and that could be build up heat or and then you know things can get lubricated so in other words there's friction that's holding everything still until something happens and that could be a, bit, a little teeny bit of melted rock, decompressional expansion, water. Anything can happen. And then a little tiny bit of lubricant makes the, the plate slide. And then that's when you do have the cracks or the earthquakes. And that's when you can actually have earthquakes that are small enough not to be detected, but they will crack. They'll crack um, sidewalks. And, and they, they gotcha. Do. Gotcha. You know, okay. okay. Nope, that makes sense. We have to kind of think of the earth as a living, breathing entity because it literally is expanding and contracting. And in the last chapter of volume one, we actually talk about how much that affects weather. We've been taught that the sun is the only major heat source of the, of the weather, driving the weather systems. And they completely overlook the earth because they don't see this movement. They don't see the frictional, uh, frictional heat that's being built up because of the movement of these celestial bodies, the sun and the moon. And so what we can do now with weather is we can predict things that happen days in advance because we can see the movement of a higher low pressure. We can see the oscillation of the polar vortex. We can predict the La Niñas and El Nino weather patterns because of the temperature of the ocean water, but we can't tell you what makes a high pressure zone. We can't tell you 
why a low pressure forms. We can tell you what happens when it does, you know, like tornadoes and things, but we can't tell you what actually makes it form. And so, for example, Las Vegas is constantly sets underneath this high pressure zone that gives us about, on the average, 320 or so days of clear weather a year. Clear, you know, and, and I love being here from the astronomy standpoint because almost every single night, no matter what, the sky clears up because we're under a high pressure zone. That high pressure zone is being created because the earth is breathing right here. The fault lines that are part of the whole Black Canyon Lake Mead area, these are outgassing. In the wintertime, we see that as, as the, uh, the gypsum being pushed up through the soil. It's literally pushing this out, this constant mm. migration of salts up through the surface is because of the out pressure that's being generated. It's creating a high pressure zone here. And so wow. that's why we always have one. They don't know that. They never talk about that. They just know that where it comes and they can predict its movement. And so we've got tons and tons of data to know what happens and where things are going, but nobody can tell you how it's forming. Wow. And it's because we're not studying the water planet as a water planet. Okay, let me ask you another question. Again, simple, simple mind here. What about global warming is one is it really happening two are we doing it or is this a product of the earth's natural as you were saying friction well that's a pretty loaded subject so let me answer it in a couple of ways okay number one if we just look at the data we see the same thing everybody else does and what do we see we see that temperatures on average are rising. We see that storms are increasing in ferocity and in frequency. We are seeing things like the Mississippi River running dry and we see these kind of things. But what we also see is that this is a cyclical process that has happened for hundreds of thousands of years. So in, in, in one way, in the 1970s, it's just 50 years ago, the whole fear was global cooling. And the earth was going to was on its way into the next ice age. And that's because, you know, everything was getting cold. And now all of a sudden we've swung the other way. And so we've reached the point where our insanity has brought us to where we think cow farts are creating this problem. And this is just it's it's absurd. Right. Now, one single volcanic eruption puts more CO2 in the air than all of the cars on in the United States driving for a full year. And then here's the other, if you think, it's, it's just follow the money. If you think about the great lie of electric cars, right? And I, I'm sure that you've already explored this idea. Yeah. First of all, we expend enormous amounts of resources and energy to produce the ores and the, and the iron and the lithium and all the rare earth elements to make the batteries. And then we still have to build coal-fired or oil-fired power plants to produce the electricity to charge them. And even if we want to go green and we have um, uh, the windmills doing it, every windmill takes a 55-gallon drum of oil to lubricate it on a regular basis. And so, and, and the whole building of it, fiberglass structure and the steel structure requires enormous amounts of electrical energy generated by regular traditional methods. I hate the use of the word fossil fuel, you know, that. That whole concept came because Rockefeller wanted to create an idea of scarcity. Right. 
literally marketed it as a fossil fuel to make it seem like, oh, there were dinosaurs. But fossil fuel is a false narrative. It came from microbial things that happened mostly during the flood, but there was an abundance of oil. And so it's just a it's a it's a scarcity lie to think that that's the that's the answer. We've already proven that we can scrub the emissions from coal-fired power plants and from oil oil-fired power plants to clean the air. We already know that we can do that. So it's yeah. just it's it's a total false narrative to think that we have to go supposedly green. In reality, that's that's just about shifting money. Yeah. Yeah, no, I and and the the quote you made about the volcanoes was the one I was going to bring up, right? As as I kind of just did my cursory, you know, in looking at it, right? And again, I've obviously proven on this podcast I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but and so if a guy like me can look and see, hey, there's more CO two coming out of one eruption than anything man has ever made. It, it just doesn't seem to hold water that in a hundred years of uh, since the industrial revolution that we've managed to screw it up as bad as what they say we have. So I want to, before you cut me off here, and I know you're getting close to doing that. Um, I want to kind of set the stage for part two of this universal model. Okay. Okay. We've talked about how water is in rocks and how, you know what um what that really means but i want to share with something with you again i'm going to put the screen back up here this is actually an experiment where we performed where we took this quartz right here see it says before growing yeah in 24 hours this is what that quartz crystal looked like wow okay so this is a one day growth this is another version of that and so we've learned how to make quartz crystals. We've learned how to make sandstone. And then when we start asking questions about what is a fossil, a fossil is a rock that started out as wood or as bone and then was replaced with silica. And modern science thinks that takes 65 million years or so. We've produced petrified wood in two days. Ooh. This is this is like one experiment that changes the world. Bones, well, yeah. solidified yeah. bones, can be created really fast. Because correct me if I'm wrong, that kind of starts to upset the idea of carbon dating as well, right? Well, carbon dating, if we talk a little bit about that for just a minute. So carbon dating means that you date radioactive carbon, which is carbon-14. Now, the most common carbon is just regular carbon-12. That's when you have carbon-12 in your body, carbon dioxide when you exhale it. Limestone has carbon in it, the, the carbon molecules in it. Your car produces hydrocarbon fuels produce, you know, so carbon's like in everything. All living things have carbon. We're carbon-based life forms. You've heard that probably, right? Yeah. So carbon is throughout the whole system. Well, a, a tiny fraction of the carbon, we're talking about less than a percent, is carbon-14, which is not stable. And so carbon-14 isn't stable and is eventually going to break down. And the concept of half-life means that if I start out with a pound of stuff, in a certain amount of time, I'm going to have half a pound. How long does it take that pound to become half a pound? Or how long does it take 
this unstable carbon-14 to break down into its daughter elements of, I don't remember actually what they are right now, but into the daughter elements that's not carbon-14, right? So carbon-14 is a dating method that they know that 5,720 years is the half-life of carbon-14. So the first thing you have to do is make an assumption about how carbon-14 is actually created. And then you have to make an assumption of how much carbon-14 was in the system a long time ago, because none of us were around more than 5,720 years ago, right? So we, we have to extrapolate that. And especially if you go back half another, 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 you know, three, four, five versions of 5,720 years, and it becomes this incrementally impossible small amount that's almost non-existent, right? So the whole idea of carbon-14 is you're dating this tiny amount of carbon and you're trying to extrapolate its date. But in volume two, we actually did, uh, we, we have an article in there by a woman who dated two Rattus Norway, rat, Norway rats, right? They were euthanized, so they were living, captured in the same general area. They were euthanized and they sent them off to two different labs to get carbon dating. When they came back, one of them was about 1600 years old. The other one died 280 years in the future. <laughs> okay, so these are, Sorry. These, are, these are rats that they, they did you know genetic analysis to know that they were like in the same kind of family, the same, you know, maybe even brother or sister, I don't know. But they send these off. And because the answer was so strange, it was in a published journal article. This wasn't just some person saying it, it was in the, actually the journal Science. Dean actually wrote to the lady and said, is this real? And she says, well, yes, it's a peer-reviewed article. It's real. And so what she did is she says, oh, that tells us about something about what they ate. So the carbon-14 dating isn't really that accurate. <laughs> but there can be uses for it because it's a relative dating system, which means if we have other things that we can corroborate it to, and they call that um, calibrating the radiometric clock, right? Mm -hmm. And so it, there are some times where that's a useful tool because there is known, there's other known things that you can date to. So if you do have like maybe some, some leftover, some ash from a fire pit or a tree or some other thing that's carbon, still has to be carbon-based, then maybe you can uh, date approximate dating. But as to the idea that you can date something more than, more than, uh, 20 or 30,000 years old is just completely silly to think that. So carbon, when a rock, when a, when a log turns into a piece of petrified wood, there's no carbon in it. So fossils cannot be dated directly by any radiometric dating. Fossils can never be dated. It doesn't matter if it's a dinosaur bone, petrified tree, shark tooth. They cannot be dated, so they can only infer the dating by the layer that it's found in. And you also can't date sedimentary rock because sedimentary rock is other rock that's just been laid and you don't know how old they are when that happened. So 100% of all dinosaur bones are always found in flood type sediment. And you can't date those. You can't date the bone or the sediment. So you have to infer it by some, well, way over there, there was a, a volcanic eruption or over here. So there's things that they do, but they're always inferred. And never can you carbon date a dinosaur bone or petrified wood. Wow. Wow.
I, I've often wondered about that because they they always go back to that with a certain level of with, with a level of certainty that allows them to have like an authority position. And I've often wondered, you know, is, is that is it really that reliable? It doesn't sound like it is. No, I think I think, like I say, there is relative things that you can use for example if you're trying to date and you're trying to figure out um and where somebody lived in mississippi and you're looking you know where did they live were they older than this one than this one i think there's some value in that but when you start applying radiometric dating to other things um like the hawaiian islands for example or to meteorites you know, we come up with the Earth being 4.5 billion years old because they studied the Arizona crater. I don't think we should get into that tonight. We can do this on a part two because that's a whole story in itself. Yeah. The Arizona meteor crater is not really caused by a meteorite. But it's the study of that crater that created the date of 4.5 billion years old because they teased some lead isotopes that they assumed had were the daughter products of radioactive uranium. Wow. So it's a... It's just fascinating to me to think how we literally built this whole system out of nothing. And modern science believes, basically, that's what the Big Bang is. The Big Bang is a universe that came from nothing. Right. So not only does their theory of creation come from nothing, but the foundation of what they teach is really that great and spacious building that has no foundation. It's floating in the air. They, they have no foundation for for so much of what they're putting out there, it's built on somebody's ideas some generations ago, and nobody questions those fundamentals. And when you do, you you basically get mocked and scoffed at. Gotcha. Yeah, no, you're 100% right. Russ, we've done almost two hours here, big guy. <laughs> Is there anything you want to go over right now before we uh, we schedule a part two? You know, the thing I want to encourage people more than anything is um, most of us, I think most of your listeners are probably, they've, they've grown up with the Bible probably somewhere nearby. And we've looked at the Bible as if it is just a text to talk about some religion. And we've not really given it the credence as an actual history book. But I have to tell you that I have learned in, in my studies and everything is that the first probably 12 chapters of Genesis are the most important book of scripture that we have, and we all should read it. I particularly like the translation that Joseph Smith did, the inspired version, but we should all read those first 12 chapters because our entire theology and all of science can be revealed in those chapters. That's a pretty bold statement. It's a huge but I think statement. If we, if we will spend the time to truly understand that it's a magnificent book of enormous value and, and i just want to kind of leave maybe with my testimony that the bible that especially the book of genesis is is should be the foundation of our learning and should be the foundation of what we do not to take our worldview and shove it in but to take what it says and then go out and, and learn the science and truly do the experiments to see how magnificent that single book is and how important it is in our life. That's beautiful. All right. If someone wants to grab the universal model, where do they go? 
uh, go to truthseekersfoundation.com and I'll get you a link. We have a landing page. I think it's uh, UM Science, um, but I'll get you a landing page. And, and when I send that picture over to you, okay, I'll, I'll include the link on there. But truthseekersfoundation.com is kind of all of our stuff, our tours, our books, our workbooks. And then maybe next time we can kind of jump into a little bit yeah. of, uh, of the workbook and how to bring that into geography and um, in your own body. We'll talk about the life in the human body and how we've how the universal model is a way of teaching to your kids the truth about how their bodies are, are functioning and what's going on inside their bodies. Dude, that sounds awesome. I can't wait. Stick around because I want to get you scheduled before you leave. All right. Yep. All right, Russ, you're awesome. That was awesome. You took a guy who hates science and I couldn't stop asking questions. So that's, if, if you never do anything else, you can say, I think I taught Dave Sanders something and somewhere there'll be a science teacher completely irritated that I had in high school. So good for you, man. All right. Bye everybody.